this. Hi guys, how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, those who don't know me, I'm Mike. I'm one of the leaders here at Holy Trinity. Um, and over the past few weeks, we've been going through this series in foundations. The things that uh, we believe, the things that are important to us, the things that unite us, that inform our worship and the way that we live and worship. And today, as you might have guessed in the reading, we're looking at the resurrection, the moment in history where Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But what we're also looking at is the future hope we have in resurrection as well, that Jesus' resurrection pointed us all towards. There's these two elements that we're going to be dealing with today. And I'm hoping that as we discuss this, as we look at the Bible's teaching on resurrection and what Jesus says about it, that whoever you are, whatever your view on Christianity, I want us to end up with a greater vision for the future and um, think of how that will impact the way that we live right now. Okay, so a greater vision for the future and a greater vision for the present as well. Now, let's slide on. I don't know if anyone remembers this image. Uh, maybe pop on to the next one. See, anyone remember this from a few years ago, maybe about 2015? Okay, it was this great big social media debate. This was one of the all-time great debates in human history. Okay, it was online. This image came out. I think it was from someone's wedding or something, and. On the one side, half the people looking at this image, for some, there's some scientific reason behind this, but I don't understand it, um, looked at it, and they saw the image looking like it was gold and white. And other people would look at the image, and they would see that it was blue and black. Okay, So you can see, oh, this one's a sort of composite, trying to sort of emphasize the two differences. But everyone looked at this, different, this image and saw it differently. And there were these great hashtag wars. Social media was afire with it. Everyone was you know, vehemently arguing their point. How could you possibly think that it's blue and black? How could you possibly think it was gold and white? It was one of the great uh, debates. But let's flick back 2,000 years ago. That was the great debate of our era, from my lifetime, I like to think. Um, but in the time that Jesus was ministering and preaching, one of the major debates that was taking place was around this concept of resurrection. There were two different, different religious groups with wildly different viewpoints on the topic. Do you want to put the next slide on? Okay. On the one hand, you had the Pharisees. I don't know how well you can read that, but I'm going to go through it anyway. You had the Pharisees, and they believed that at the end of time, um, everyone would be resurrected and brought back to life, and God would judge people for their actions. The, the good would go to eternal life, and the wicked would face punishment for their, for their actions. So that's the one side. Uh, and then you had the Sadducees. Okay, these guys, um, they denied any resurrection. They denied any form of afterlife. What you see in this life is what you get. So you had these two great debate, two sides of the debate, arguing lots, debating lots. Always, whenever these guys were together, that's the topic that would come up and cause arguments. Now, 2,000 years later, as a culture, we seem to be tending more towards the Sadducees side. Okay, we'll hold off. Yeah. Um, the Sadducee side. We often think, I think generally in discussion, if you read online, on TV, that there is no afterlife, that there's no eternal soul, there's no heaven or hell. They kind of fall generally more towards the Sadducee side. And I think there's three reasons why we've drifted this way as a culture. Not so much why we intellectually disagree, although people will have their reasons, but why we don't necessarily want to believe or want to think about what happens after death. So the first one, we can go on to the next slide. I'm getting back into my teacher. I used to be a teacher before this, so I'm trying to use the PowerPoint as well. I'm trying to get back in the habit of, uh, of using it, which I, I feel it's very helpful, but I'm, I'm still you know, out of practice. So. I think the first reason that we often don't want to talk about the afterlife is often because life is good. 
So rather than the Pharisees, who were generally ordinary folk who had chosen to become priests, the Sadducees were from aristocratic families. They were rich, they were wealthy, they had high status in society. Now, we may not put ourselves in that category of rich and wealthy, but when we look at the quality of life that we have in comparison to most of human history, or when we look at um, you know, the world globally and the difference in quality of life around the world, then actually we can say that we have a level of comfort and security that is pretty unrivaled throughout history. Um, and at the same time, as a culture, we put a lot of stock on friends and family, things that, that give us hope and joy, good things. Um, and these things are not a bad idea, but what happens when we start to put a lot of value and a lot of weight on these things, and the same with our comfort and our security, is that we get scared that anything might change the status quo. Anything might disrupt that. And so the idea of what might happen after death, the unknown, that suddenly can cause us a lot of, of fear and anxiety. So what we don't, we end up not talking about resurrection, and we're not talking about what might happen afterwards. So that's the first one. Now the second reason we often don't like to talk about resurrection is when life is bad. Okay? We are more aware than any prior generation, because of TV, because of uh, the internet, of global injustices, of how broken our society is, how broken the systems in our society are. Even with comfort and wealth that we may experience, we as a nation face a huge challenge to mental health. We have lots of challenges that, are, that we carry. And people can often be reluctant to talk about resurrection, talk about the future, talk about what happens after death, because it seems to be ignoring the issues we face right now. Karl Marx famously called religion the opiate of the masses. He's saying it's like the idea is that it relieves the pain and suffering for now by helping us to ignore what's, what's going on. You know, we might think about the future and go, oh, it's all going to be lovely then, so we can put up with some rubbish right now. Um, the idea is that if we are consumed with the life that is to come, we won't do anything about the world we live in right now. And that feels, and rightly so, unacceptable to us. So just as it's hard to talk about resurrection when life is good, it can also feel very hard to talk about it when life is bad. And then the third reason we don't like to talk about a resurrection is because, frankly, it's a little scary. It's the unknown. We don't, you know, we, we face this with, with a bit of a trepidation. The idea that someday we'll be woken up, uh, back up, and have to face judgment for the things we've done is pretty terrifying. If, like me, you have made mistakes in your life. And let's be honest, worse than mistakes, we've been cruel, or we've been selfish, or on a grander scale, and I think this is sometimes stuff that we, we don't see, is that we've participated in these unjust systems. We've been the beneficiaries of them. We've done well out of, um, you know, we've worn clothes that are made in sweatshops. We've eaten food made by underpaid workers. We've put our savings in banks that fund unethical industries. And when it's just me, I can kind of be like, ah, it's okay, you know, I can let myself off the hook. It's not that big a deal. Everyone does it, you know, you know, and, but do I actually think I've acted with complete integrity? in every situation? Have I acted with kindness whenever I can? Have I acted with generosity throughout my entire life? We don't like to talk about judgment because, frankly, it is a bit scary. But, let's, but in first century Palestine, when the people were facing oppression by the occupying Romans, where sickness, poverty, and injustice would have existed as the normal everyday facts of life, they wanted to talk about resurrection. They didn't see it as an opiate that helped them to ignore suffering. Instead, God's vision for the future led them to engage proactively in the present, knowing that God's plan in the world was to one day deal with injustice in its entirety and to judge oppressors meant that every Jew living under the foot of the Romans knew that God's heart was for freedom and for justice. 
Just as an example of this, in Luke 14, Jesus talks to a man who's invited him to dinner. So some guy said, Jesus, come to my house for dinner. And Jesus says to this bloke that when he has a banquet, don't invite your friends or your family or the rich or those people who can repay you. Jesus says, invite the poor, invite the weak, those who cannot repay you. And when he says this, he finishes saying to the guy, if you do this, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And Jesus draws a straight line between the future hope we have in resurrection and the way we engage with injustice and inequality right now. So I have to say, Marx was wrong. Christianity doesn't say ignore injustice because you'll get a reward in heaven. You know, you're suffering now. Don't worry, it'll all get better soon. What it says is fight injustice and you will receive your reward in heaven. And so this is why we're talking about resurrection as one of our key foundations, as one of the things, values that we believe. It's because we believe that Jesus' teaching on resurrection gives us an incredible hope for the future, and it causes us to act in the present. So let's go back to our big debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's going on, is there a resurrection or is there not? And suddenly there's this exciting new preacher on the scene, and people want to know what Jesus thinks. Which way is he going to go? Is he going to go with the Sadducees, or is he going to go with the Pharisees? Is he going to say, no resurrection, just the life you've got now, or there is a resurrection, and you have to live for that, and that's the most important thing? Jesus' response is incredible, because when he's asked, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He takes the concept of resurrection, the hope of an afterlife, the expectation of judgment and reward, The idea of heaven, a perfect society, freedom, all of the Jewish hopes and dreams. And he says, all of these are found in me. And for these disciples, it's inspiring. It's amazing. It's confusing. And for his followers, the affirmation that there is some form of resurrection is incredible. Because they've been suffering under Roman rule for so long. They've seen people like the Sadducees getting richer and richer, while the situation for the poor gets worse and worse. And into this, Jesus offers hope. And they're thinking, could this be it? Could this be the change we've waited for, longed for, prayed for? Is this going to deal with the situation that we face? And then Jesus dies. And the Roman government, the Jewish religious leaders, they conspire together and they crucify him. And all that hope is, in a moment, snuffed out. And for three days, Jesus' followers are left in utter desolation. They run, they hide, they weep, they cry for him, for themselves, for their nation, for all the injustices that they had just begun to make sense of. But now they were left in cruel, cold disappointment. Three days of this despair. And even if he wasn't the Messiah, even if he wasn't the hope they had longed for, he was still their friend. And so while it's still dark, on the third morning after his death, Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' followers, approaches the tomb. And when she arrives, the stone that should have sat in front of it had been rolled away. I just imagine going to the graveyard to pay your last respects and finding the gravestone toppled and the ground freshly dug up and opened before you. Unsure what to do, she runs to get the other disciples, John and Simon Peter, and and she brings them back. And John gets there first, and he looks in, but he can't bring himself to enter. And then Simon Peter goes straight in, and there they find the grave clothes lying, folded neatly, confused, distraught, bewildered. The two men return to their houses and leave Mary Magdalene on her own. And only now, amidst her tears, does she find the strength to look inside the tomb. And there before her are not just the grave clothes, but two angels who ask her why she is weeping. What possible reason could she have for crying? And for her, the answer is obvious, but... 
for them, it seems like they can't possibly understand what, she, what her reasoning is. They seem to know something she doesn't. Behind, there's a noise. She thinks it's the gardener. Maybe he can help. A mo- um, through her tears, she asks him where the body is. There's a moment of silence, and then the man simply says, Mary. And suddenly, joy and realization flood her veins. The man standing for her is Jesus, her friend, her teacher, her savior, her hope. Here before her is the resurrection and the life. And suddenly, the world is completely different. Because with the resurrection of Christ, life does not end with death. The things we do can have meaning beyond this life, our short stint on this planet. See, suddenly, there is purpose and meaning in an otherwise cold universe. There is a God who cares and is considerate of humanity. Jesus' resurrection is the central point of history from which everything before leads up to and everything after responds to. We believe that 2,000 years ago, a man rose from the dead and in doing so, transformed the very fabric of the cosmos. This is something we believe to be completely true. And if it is, the implications are unbelievable. And what I'm hoping to do is just to look at three things that we can gain from this, three things we can understand and develop from this truth that Jesus came back from the dead. And so the first thing is, uh, we go to the next slide, that'd be great. Yeah, this is it. First thing is that through Jesus' resurrection, death is defeated. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to this church in Greece, and he's outlining the impact of Jesus' resurrection. He says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now, one of the beautiful things we understand from the creation story is that humanity is designed for eternity. We were meant to experience eternity, to exist with God in eternal relationship. But the Bible describes the problem we face as one where the bad things we've done and the problem of evil in this world corrupts this. We feel a sense of injustice and unease around the subject of death because it is not part of the plan. And where death has held sway for all of human history, Christ's resurrection is the moment where God says, enough. And instead, offers a means to experience again the eternal life that we're designed for. Our mortal, our perishable, fragile bodies put on Christ's immortal, imperishable, resurrected body. And when the old life dies, something we all experience, we continue on in Christ for eternity. This is just unbelievable. The great problem of humanity that every generation has experienced and suffered and felt and hit the, felt the pain of and is defeated. And the sting of death for every one of us, is removed. There is a hope beyond death because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So that's our starting point, but building on the idea that death has no hold on us, the second implication of the resurrection of Jesus, and we have to skip to three and then two, so just don't ignore that, um, is that it gives us a hope for the future. 1 Corinthians again says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Christ's resurrection is the first fruit of a much bigger harvest. It points us forward to a day where all people will be raised to life. And on that day, we will experience God's good and perfect judgment. And as I said at the start, this can be scary. 
can be pretty terrifying for those of us who are not perfect, whose actions will put us on the wrong side of God's judgment. And even though I find this hard, I also need to believe that God will not overlook evil. He'll, not, he'll deal with the injustice that has gone on before, even as he makes all things new. You know, it's even more significant for people throughout history, for people throughout the world who have experienced the sharp end of injustice and evil and oppression. We need to know that God has not overlooked that and just say it's not a big deal. Actually, he deals with it. And even though it should be a terrifying moment for us when we face God's judgment, as Christians, we don't need to face this with fear because when we are resurrected, if we have died with Christ to our old ways of life, when we are resurrected, we are resurrected in him. As we said before, we put on the imperishable, resurrected body. We clothe ourselves in Christ. And so when God looks on us, it's like he, he sees perfect, spotless, and pure, just like Christ. He no longer looks at what we've got, what we're carrying, the things that we've done. He looks at Jesus. He looks at us and sees Jesus. And we are invited into that future hope, into heaven, into a society that is fair and kind and loving and built on the character of Christ who gave his life as a sacrifice for sinful people. So the first implication of Jesus' resurrection is that death is defeated. The second is that we are given a hope for the future. But the third implication we're looking at now is that we are given power for the present. So Romans 8.11 says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. When we become Christians, followers of Christ, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that is the Holy Spirit, God himself, takes up residence in our lives. That is the power of God present in us, equipping us to live the way we were always designed to. It is a power to affect change in the world around us, to take that beautiful vision of heaven and begin to enact it here and now in a society around us, in our community here as a church, but also in the wider area as well. Now, if you've been around for a while, you can grow pretty cynical of statements about changing the world, okay? If you've seen enough political manifestos and government changes, you know, it can kind of make you go, oh, okay, yeah, change the world, great. Because, you know, we know we can have polar different economic systems. You can have capitalism and communism, but both of them fail when they're implemented by people who are greedy or selfish or power hungry. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't put a new system into place. It transforms the human heart. And from there, everything has the potential to change. So those are the three implications of Jesus' resurrection. Death is defeated. We have a hope for the future. And we have a power for the present to implement that. Now, as a church, our beliefs about the resurrection, the vision we have of heaven, is the reason we put on a connection cafe to love and support the people in our community. It's why we run a youth group to support young people facing the challenges of modern life. It's why we put on a toddler group to bless the young, uh, young families in this area. It's why we do all these things, because we believe that vision of heaven, of Jesus' resurrection, of new life, has an implication right now. It's also why we pray. It's why at the end of the service we stop and we wait and we ask God's Holy Spirit to empower us with the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Because we can see the vision that God has for the world and we know it's bigger than us. It's bigger than anything the politicians are offering. It's bigger than the power we have in ourselves. And so we know we need to stop. We need to open our arms and say, look, I've got nothing. But say, God, come and work through me. Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't let us ignore the problems of the world, to ignore injustice and just to live in comfort. Instead, it challenges us to die to this world, to give ourselves, not to wealth and comfort, but to give ourselves to mission, to bringing about righteousness to God's kingdom. 
to preach in the good news, even at the cost of our own lives. Repeatedly throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that it's only through dying with Christ that we will be raised with him. It is only through losing this world that we can grab hold of the kingdom of God. So as we continue, let's keep the resurrection at the forefront of our minds, that one day every tear will be wiped away, that God will bring about perfect justice, that the kingdom of God will be established in its fullness. It is this hope and this vision which gives us peace, but it also puts us into action. When Jesus rose from the dead, that beautiful moment of joy and hope and wonder right at the center point of history, he led us into mission by giving us a vision for what the world could and one day look like, and he led us into worship by revealing a God who loves us enough to do something about our situation. It'd be great just uh, great if you could stand. I'm just going to pray, and then we're, gonna, we're just going to wait for a bit and just invite God's Holy Spirit to come and start working in us, to start speaking into our lives. Just have a moment just of silence and just